0: And we're beginning this week, as uh, Randy mentioned, we're beginning this week, uh, uh, our Road to Resurrection series as we talk about Lent. And uh, as we get into this, you know, Lent is one of those seasons, you know, <laughs> the Chosen stuff has kind of got a nice warm feel to it and all that. And you get into Lent, it's kind of a bit of a jolt, isn't it? Uh, but but I want you to understand that, you know, this is this is important for us to be moving into this because this road we're traveling on is the road that ends up at... The foot of the cross and then at the empty tomb. Uh, a number of years ago Cindy and I were uh, in uh, Aspen That well, went out there with some friends of ours from school and uh, the, the husband of this couple had just bought a new whatever the small Toyota pickup truck was that was four-wheel drive and so we said well let's go out and well, we'll do some four-wheeling and in Colorado they cut fire roads through all the national forest areas and, and you need to hear when the word road is used loosely there. Uh, they run a bulldozer kind of through the trees, you know, and they clear a path, and that's the road. Uh, and so it's uh, it's it's less than an improved surface, shall we say? So we we got up that morning, we loaded up into a Barry's pickup truck and headed out driving up into the into the mountains from uh, Aspen, Colorado, and. You know, it's, it's a small truck, and Barry and his wife are in the cab, and Cindy and I are in the bed of the truck, and, you know, we're bouncing around back there, you know, it's all hard metal surfaces, and it's cold, and the wind's blowing, and the dust is billowing up and everything, and we're kind of beginning to think, this was not such a good idea. <laughs> and after about 30 or 40 minutes of this, all of a sudden, we came across the ridge and dropped into the Valley of the Maroon Bells, and it was like, ah, <sighs> right? Just drop-dead gorgeous. Mountains covered with the gold of the trees. And and all of a sudden it was like, ooh. Now we drove from here. We spent some time here at the lake, had a a late breakfast. We drove up over that ridge to the left, which takes you up onto Aspen Mountain and then back down into the town. And, you know, the rest of the trip, the the ride was not any better. But, you know, once you have this view in your mind and, and you've been here, the rest of it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And that's, that's kind of the way I want you to think of this road we go down Lent. You know, there's parts of it that are pretty rough and that are pretty difficult and pretty challenging. But the view at the end of this resurrection, and if you can keep that in front of you, the rest of it's not so bad. I mean, Paul wrote to the church in Rome with these words, and we're going to kind of be uh, using these as a touchstone as we go through this time. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we begin this journey on this this road to resurrection, but but understand that it it leads through the crucifixion. Keep your eyes on, on the beautiful view of the resurrection, though, and the road won't be so bad. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you bring us on this journey with you, Uh, and and we confess that there's times that it will seem difficult to us, so we ask that you just keep in front of us this vision of resurrection, so that we may see that clearly uh, throughout all of these weeks as we await that Sunday. Uh, Come be present with us. Uh, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about the Last Supper because, you know, it's Communion Sunday and it seemed like a good place to start. So we're going to talk about the Last Supper. Uh, You know, sometimes it's just not that complicated. You know, by the way, you all know that Lent comes from the old English term, Lenten, which actually is our English word, lengthen, and it just means it's, it's the time of year when the days get longer. It's one of those deep theological things you have to get a hold of. You know, sometimes the church does this amazing stuff, and other times you just kind of have to go, Okay, whatever. So we're going to start this story with Mark's gospel. Uh, on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now I want to. Uh, throw a little map up here. I um, I may have to work on this a little bit because we're going to be using this for the rest of the time and it's pretty hard to see up here. But I'm just going to hopefully point out a few things to you. Uh, Here is the temple. This square right here is the temple mount. Uh, Just north of it, these little blocks right here, this is the Antonian fortress. This is the Roman fortress, Pilate's uh, fortress. Uh, Over on the back side over here, here's the palace of Herod. Here's the Hasmonean palace. Here's the house of Caiaphas. And over here is the Kidron Valley. And across that, or kind of down in the bottom of it almost, is the Garden of Gethsemane. And then here's the Mount of Olives. And if you went over the top of the Mount of Olives, off to the right of this map, you would come to the village of Bethany. Uh, And actually, you can see it said right here, to Bethany. Uh, And and that's where Jesus and his disciples would have stayed. So when they came in, they were going to have to navigate this road in and either go through the temple and come over here, or they're going to have to go around the city because the upper room is all the way over here at this end of town. Uh, This is called the Old Quarter. This is the upper city. Uh, This part of Jerusalem is called the Lower City or the City of David. So, they had to travel through this and to find this this upper room all the way over here they were going to need someone to guide them and jesus says when you go into town just look for a guy carrying a jar of water now that's kind of unusual because in this day and age men would not have been the ones carrying the jars of water it would have been the women that would have been doing that and in fact most cultures i know of it is the women that get stuck with the task of carrying water Um, and so um Bad luck, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we won't get into that comp. That's a whole other topic. Uh, but, but the, I mean, that was unusual, especially in the middle of the day. And then he says, once you get to the house, just say, well, you know, there's going to be a large room upstairs and it's furnished, and you just tell him the master has needed that for the Passover. There's debate about, well, does that mean that all of this was kind of prearranged, that you know somebody had talked to somebody who had talked to somebody and, and set all this up, or did Jesus just happen to know this, uh, you know, a kind of a divine foreknowledge of what was going to happen? And there's no way to unpack that. Now, there is uh, quite a bit of debate that the house, the upper room, actually uh, belong to a member of Mark's family and Mark who is the mark of the gospel incidentally also is the the first bishop of the Christian church in Africa uh, so uh, you know there's connections there that could have been there um but nonetheless, it's an unusual kind of thing, and, and the men followed this guy to find this upper room, this building, and when they got there, they found, indeed, there's a, a large upper room. It's quite ornate. Uh, this is a recreation uh, that's in Jerusalem now. Uh, obviously, this was flattened when the Romans flattened the city in the 60s, uh, and then it was bombed at a later date and rebuilt again. So this is kind of the third iteration of it, but this is as faithful as possible to the way the room was uh, at that time, and you can see it's, it's quite ornate. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. We we sometimes forget that this was this was kind of a celebratory meal. I mean, this is the the seder meal. They come together. There's a little ritual, if you will, where where they talk about the items on the table because each item that's there tells part of the story uh the bitter herbs you know represent the bitterness of of the slavery Uh, the salt water represents the tears of their ancestors and so they go through and, and, and have kind of a little ritual they go through to remember that they were once slaves in egypt and that god brought them out and, and it's more of a celebration kind of thing. It's kind of like for us, you know, if you have a, 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 a tradition like our family, we have a big Christmas dinner at some point and we read the Christmas story out of Scripture and we remember the birth of Christ and it's kind of a big celebratory moment. Well, that's, that's what the, the Seder meal, that's the, kind of the function of it in this day and age. It's a celebratory time and they would have gathered at a table, And I apologize for the quality of this picture. Uh, It's called a triclinium. It's a three-sided table that they would have reclined around. And you'll notice they're all kind of reclining on a raised platform because the only people in this day and age that sat in chairs were people that had a physical ailment or that were extremely elderly. And I won't say anything about all of you, so... uh, but, but you can see they're laying on this around the table. And sometimes this was a big enough thing that the table itself was kind of a U-shape so that the servants could get in there to serve. But they laid around. And as you can see, uh, they're they're laying there. Their feet are up there with them. So... When they would have arrived for a meal like this, to have this great celebration, as they entered the room and came in, there would have been a servant there uh, to wash their feet because they had bathed in the morning, but they'd been walking around that day in sandals on roads that were, you know, dirt and sand and stone and on which animals had walked. And their feet would become, by the end of the day, somewhat aromatic, if you get my drift. So they had somebody that would wash them. And usually this was whatever servant was the lowest person on on the pecking order uh, in the household. On this occasion as they arrived, there was no servant. The basin was there, the towel was there, but no one was there to wash their feet. And and, and the disciples didn't stop and wash each other's feet. Instead, they, they come around this table and... And lay down, and, and they actually begin the meal. And it's in the midst of the meal that John tells us this happens. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, that He had come from God and was returning to God. So He got up from the meal. Notice He has to get up; He's in the middle of the meal. Took off His outer clothing, wrapped a towel around His waist, and after that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. Now that created quite an uproar. This is the scene where Peter's saying, No, you know, wash all of me, and that discussion goes. But but it was shocking because the disciples had been too proud to wash each other's feet, but now the Messiah is doing this. And when Jesus is finished, he says to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It wasn't simply enough to know and to understand. It was a call that they had to actually live that out. Now, now that story only appears in John's gospel, but you get a similar flavor from this story in Luke's gospel. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Indeed, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves interesting. Here, here he's gathering them for this, this last supper before these events that occur and they're all about you know who's number one in the group and who's the best disciple and I'm not going to wash your feet. Why should I wash your feet? You're not any better than I am and all this. And Jesus calls them on account and says that's not the way it is to be in the kingdom. You're to be servants of one another. And the blessing the blessing comes if you actually do it not just talk about it. So every time I read through this I just I kind of wonder are we are we really willing to become servants in Christ's name you know, or, or are we too full of pride in ourselves to do it? You know, when I'm in mission fields, whether they're overseas or whether they're here in the midst of a disaster, one of the things I've learned is that, that people will come together and they'll, they'll work to, to do whatever it is, feed people, house people, clean things up, whatever needs to be done. They'll come together and work regardless of what their denomination or background is. But as soon as we go back home and we're in the mission field here, here where we're supposed to be bringing people into relationship with Jesus, then we start to say things like, well, at least I'm not a Baptist or I'm not a Presbyterian, or I'm not a this, or I'm not a that. And if you grew up in South Texas, where I did, you know, all, you had the, the, the Protestants all said, well, at least I'm not Roman Catholic. And the Roman Catholic says, well, at least we're not Protestant. I mean, we all do that. We start looking down on each other. We start breaking pride in each other. Sometimes we even like to be proud of our humility, don't we? I'm glad I'm not like them, right? This is who we are. This is who the disciples were that night. It's who we still are. So easy for us, instead of being servants, to become filled with pride. And Jesus continues. When they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And Matthew adds a little more explanation in another part. He says, "Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And Mark continues, They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. You know, this story has become so familiar, this 30 pieces of silver in Judas, that we all just assume that, you know, well, the only person he's talking about here is Judas. But I want you to really think about the fact that when he says that, every one of the 12 is at the table with him. Every one of the 12 is going to dip into the bowl with him. It's really easy for us to focus the blame on Judas, but the fact of the matter is Peter's going to deny him. The 12 are going to abandon him when he gets arrested. Every one of them will betray and abandon him. And I, I'm always kind of taken aback when I think about that to think, man, how many times do, do I do that? I mean, how do I deny or betray Christ? And, you know, what's the price I want for my betrayal? Can I be bought? In the last couple of days, I've heard a a couple of things. I've heard a a man telling a story last night at the Emmaus gathering about when he was young and would go on spiritual kind of retreats and he would come home and be all fired up and then go back to school and immediately kind of pull back because he was kind of embarrassed to, to share that in front of people, with people. I heard another member of this congregation who changed jobs talking about being so excited about this new job. It's a much smaller company. It's more flexible. Plus, the people in the smaller company, the principles of it are Christian. and They'll allow him to talk about his faith at work. Whereas in his old company, that was a rule that you didn't speak about your faith in the workplace. And I can remember my daughter talking about her school setting and the, and the rules that governed what she could talk about and what she couldn't talk about when it came to her faith. You know, we, we live in a culture which used to be very accommodating to faith, but is not so much anymore. And I, I, if you've been reading, by the way, if you've been reading Seedbed, you've seen J.D. wrestling with this the last couple of mornings. I did not know he was going to do that. Um, but, you know, our, our, our secular culture that we live in it, it is a culture founded on a series of laws based on the Constitution, Mostly. But our faith is a way of life that's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't figured it out, the Constitution and the gospel are not the same thing. There's time they line up really well together. There's time they don't line up together. And increasingly in the world we live in, the challenge is going to be when we go out is how, how are we living faithfully to Christ? How are, we, how are we sharing our faith? Are we doing that or do we want to pay the price of looking respectable and, and not having to deal with the hassle so that we just deny Him? A number of years ago, uh, the town in which I was in, the, the school district had kind of a practice where before the football games the coach and the, the football team would pray together and they got sued and the court said you can't do that anymore so uh so you know the coach was a member of my church and he and I were talking about it and kind of bemoaning the fact that you know he couldn't do it and he said you know I don't know what to do and and we looked at the ruling the ruling said you know if the kids wanted to do it spontaneously they could it was just that the coach couldn't lead them or we couldn't you know, lead them in doing that. And so that Wednesday night when they had their youth group gathering and we shared with them that the, the coach could no longer you know, do this with them anymore. And I had most of the starting lineup in my youth group there and, and, and do that. The kids said, well, wait a minute. You said if, if we wanted to do it, we could do it. The coach just can't lead us that. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll do that. Okay, well, Bobby, you do this game, and Joe, you do this game. and I mean, they just counted off, and they took care of it. And I thought, well, that's a great workaround. But it was interesting that they thought of it, not us. They thought about how do we remain and do what we feel we're called to do. I, increasingly, that's going to become more and more for us a challenge. And the question of whether we're denying and betraying and what the price to get us to do that is, is going to become something we're all going to be wrestling with. Mark moves on and tells the rest of the story. So while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Mark's widely considered the first gospel to be written, but but even before Mark came out, by a substantial number of years, Paul wrote the first letter to the church in Corinth and wrote, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant, the covenant that Jeremiah spoke of in my blood. Sometimes scholars wrestle a little bit with where communion came from, but if you look at this letter to 1 Corinthians, it's obvious that it was already a practice early in the church, very quickly became a practice in the church where they had taken the the Seder meal and the understanding of how God had brought the people Israel out of Egypt and and followed Christ's leading to, to reinterpret that now as the Holy Communion meal in which we understand how Christ leads us out of our slavery to sin and death. And it became the central item of worship for the early church. And even today, it's still one of the most powerful things we do. Acknowledging that that Christ, in giving himself, not only offers himself up as a substitute for the, the kind of things we should be suffering through because of sin, but also he gives us a gift of life that sustains us. And then Mark closes by saying, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, because even back then they sang a hymn at the end of the service. It's just, that's still the way we do it. So I, I, I think about this meal, and I, I just, you know, kind of gather all those pieces up, and it makes me wonder, and, and I want to put one more layer on it for you. A number of years ago, uh, my friend Marty Marshall was doing a communion uh, that I was at, and one of the questions he said before we received communion, he said, you know, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, Who would you invite to have dinner with you tonight? Yeah. that was a really good question. I mean, who would you choose to come to dinner if you knew it was your last? I mean, your family, your friends, the people you love the most, the people you're closest to, right? I mean, you'd you'd want those precious people to come and have one last meal with you. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing, isn't it? I mean, he called together the people he loved the most to be with him, the disciples. That, that's, that's who he gathered to be there. He knew they were too proud to wash each other's feet. He knew they were going to deny and betray him. He knew that. And yet he loved them so much that that's who he wanted at the table. And we disciples who sometimes are too full of our pride, and who deny and betray. We're the ones he wants at the table because he still loves us. I mean, do you know that that Jesus feels the same way about you that he did the disciples way back then? The word that's sometimes used when they talk about this period of time, the, the last days of Jesus' life, they'll talk about the passion is the word they'll use. And that word in its root means of the heart. And the word compassion means my heart is with you. But passion means of the heart. This is of the heart, Jesus' heart, Jesus' love being poured out. And you hear that really clearly when in Luke's gospel when Jesus talks to the disciples. And they're reclined at the table and he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've eagerly desired to eat this with you. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows that they're still full of pride. He knows that they don't understand, that they don't get it. He knows that they're not theological sophisticates. He knows that they're going to deny him. He knows they're going to betray him and abandon him. He knows all of that. And yet he says, I have eagerly desired, I've longed to share this meal with you. Because his love for them is so great. That even when they take their eyes off of him. He doesn't take his eyes off of them. So my friends, here here we are getting ready to have communion this morning. And, and, And I just want to say, you know, Jesus longs, Jesus longs to share this meal with you. Jesus longs to share this meal with me. He knows who we are. He knows all of our failures. He knows all of our faults. He knows all the rough edges on us. And yet, He loves us so much that He longs for us to come and be at this table with Him and to share this meal with Him. So I want you to say that with me this morning. I want you to say, Jesus longs to share this meal with me. Say that with me. Jesus longs to share this meal with me. Now, emphasize longs. Jesus longs to share this meal with me. Now, emphasize me. Jesus longs to share this meal with me, with me, with you. Because this is the heart of Christ, who even when we don't keep our eyes on him, his eyes and his heart are always on us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this great love that goes beyond our understanding. This love that overlooks our brokenness that understands that we are prideful, that understands that sometimes we deny and betray, that sees all of our rough edges and yet loves us so much that you call us to this table with you. And so we give you thanks for this great love, this great heart that longs, that longs to be with us. And we thank you. Amen. I'm going to ask that those who are